You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon podcast, episode two, Enlightenment and Tyranny. And we're back. Thanks for joining me. Today I'm starting a general overview of European history in the 18th century. I think it will be useful to have a little background before we delve into the narrative. This way I won't have to stop everything and give a long introduction every time a new player enters the international scene. I'm going to talk about a few general trends, as well as what was going on country by country. I was hoping to get through this introduction in three episodes, one for France, one for Britain, one for everywhere else. Turns out I was a little overambitious, which I guess is fitting for a Napoleon podcast. I've broken up the everywhere else episode into two pieces. Today I'll be talking specifically about the Enlightenment and Western Europe. You sometimes see the 18th century depicted as a time of stagnation. People seem to think Europe was asleep, just waiting for the French Revolution to kick off the momentous, fast-paced change of the 19th century. I think this depiction is incomplete and misleading. While it's true that the 18th century didn't move at quite the breakneck pace of the post-1789 era, the world is never standing still, and it certainly wasn't during the 18th century. For one thing, this period saw an intellectual revolution that presaged the political revolutions of later eras the Enlightenment. So what is the Enlightenment? The German philosopher Immanuel Kant tried to answer this question in his aptly titled essay, Answering the Question, What is the Enlightenment?, which was published in 1784, near the end of the movement. Kant wrote, Enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-imposed knowledge. Knowledge is the inability to use one's own understanding without another's guidance. This knowledge is self-imposed if its cause lies not in lack of understanding, but in indecision and lack of courage to use one's own mind without another's guidance. Dare to know. Okay, so what does that mean? Enlightenment thinkers, often called philosophes, believed individuals should use their own reasoning as a guide to truth rather than relying on intellectual or spiritual authority. They exalted empiricism, objectivity, and individualism. They relentlessly questioned and rejected old orthodoxies, instead putting their faith in the human capacity for self-improvement and progress. This is one of those subjects that can be hard to wrap your head around, simply because it's so fundamental to the world we live in, and so deeply ingrained in our own ways of thinking. To take one example... Most of us take for granted that there is such a thing as universal objective reality that all human beings experience, and that we can learn universal truths about that reality through empirical study. 
It might sound a little silly to say something so obvious out loud, but this idea was not fully articulated or accepted by Europeans until the Enlightenment. Before any philosophy grad students out there start writing angry emails, I should say that I'm generalizing quite a bit here because I don't want to get too far into the weeds with this stuff. This is a history podcast, not a philosophy podcast. But the Enlightenment isn't just some abstract philosophical topic. These ideas were important to the politics of this era, and a major influence on Napoleon and many of his peers. With all these individualistic, free-thinking ideas in the air, you might think 18th century politics were all about liberty and democracy. In fact, it is quite the opposite. This was a time in which monarchs and central governments massively increased their power. These centralizing authoritarian reformers believed all political authority should flow from a single source, a country's central government as personified by the monarch. This was still a relatively new idea in the 18th century. Feudal monarchies had not been run this way. Feudalism was an endlessly complex web of interconnected reciprocal relationships between masters and vassals. 18th century centralizers wanted to replace this web with a very simple relationship. The monarch would protect and govern his subjects, and in return, they would obey him and serve his state. Most scholars label this ideology absolutism, which is the term I'll be using for it. Absolutism probably sounds pretty dark, maybe even a little evil to most of you listening, but it wasn't just about satisfying some greedy king's lust for power. There are good arguments to be made that absolute monarchy was a genuine improvement over the old feudal system. In feudal regimes, the king ruled indirectly, mostly through the nobility, who had their own bases of political and military power, and their own interests that sometimes diverged from the king's. This often made feudal administration inefficient and unstable. Absolute monarchy sounds tyrannical, maybe even a little totalitarian to us, but it's important to keep in mind that in the feudal system, the vast majority of people were already living under the despotic thumb of their local lord. The tyranny of a king hundreds of miles away in the capital was often softer and less arbitrary than the tyranny of someone just down the road. Absolute monarchies also tended to be better at marshalling and directing a country's resources. Generally, closer adherence to absolutist principles meant more tax revenue for the central government, bigger armies, and a stronger economy. Countries with weak monarchs and strong nobilities tended to stagnate, or even disappear entirely, swallowed up by more powerful rivals. With the benefit of hindsight, embracing these centralizing reforms looks like the obvious smart choice, but a lot of powerful people at the time had good reasons to think otherwise. The nobility tended to resist reform at all costs. Most didn't care much for this newfangled concept of national interest, and didn't see anything morally wrong with putting their own interests ahead of the country's. Churches, particularly the Catholic Church, also tended to lose power in absolutist states, so many high-up clergymen resisted change as well. And this resistance to absolute principles wasn't some polite, high-minded debate. For example, well over 100,000 Britons and Irishmen died in the English Civil War and other related conflicts that were largely started due to Charles I's efforts to rule as an absolute monarch. The king himself was among the dead. Charles was put on trial by his enemies and refused to participate in the proceedings, even to defend himself, claiming that God alone had the right to judge a monarch. You could make a case he actually died for the principle of absolute monarchy. 
A few decades later, Peter the Great of Russia attempted an even more ambitious plan of absolutist centralizing reforms. Peter was much more competent and resourceful than the hapless Charles, and he had a lot more success, but the Russian nobility didn't take it lying down. Coup attempts and assassination plots by restive nobles were a constant feature of Peter's reign. None succeeded, but with each foiled conspiracy, Peter sunk deeper into paranoia and cruelty. By the end, he even had his own son tortured to death. Most modern scholars contend the young man was innocent. This bitter resistance to reform can be hard to understand in hindsight. Most educated people at the time could see that the feudal system was antiquated and inefficient. So why were so many of them willing to actually put their lives on the line to oppose reform? Truth is, all throughout history, there is always someone who benefits from the status quo, and so there is always someone willing to defend it, even if that status quo seems totally untenable. And it's important to keep in mind that a lot of these recalcitrant nobles weren't actually opposed to change in principle, they just didn't want change to come at their expense. So how does absolutism tie in with the Enlightenment? From our perspective, all this talk of thinking for yourself and questioning authority might seem like an odd fit with all these monarchs grabbing power. But the trend towards absolutism didn't happen in spite of the Enlightenment. Many of these centralizing authoritarian reformers were actually inspired by these new ideas, and some of the philosophes actually supported their efforts. Enlightenment political thinkers were pushing for major social and political transformations. That type of profound change requires a lot of political power, so it was natural for these thinkers to look for powerful allies who were also seeking to change the political system. Compared to politics in our own time, most American liberals believe in a strong federal government. A lot of them aren't particularly in love with the U.S. federal government. They don't necessarily believe in federal power for its own sake, but they think it can be used to overcome other powerful interests that are opposed to their agenda. I see a lot of parallels there with the way Enlightenment thinkers viewed monarchical power. And it helped that many monarchs and officials within the royal governments were quite receptive to Enlightenment ideas. They were looking for ways to make their administration more efficient and effective, and applying Enlightenment concepts like rationalism and empiricism was a good way to do that. The Enlightenment and the centralizing, rationalizing reforms that it helped inspire are really important trends that we need to keep one eye on whenever we're talking about the 18th and early 19th century uh, political sphere, but we shouldn't overestimate them either. Even when this intellectual revolution was at its height, most Europeans didn't even know what was going on. The people who actually took part in the Enlightenment were a small minority within a minority. Many Europeans were illiterate in this era, and many of those who could read didn't have extra money to spend on books and pamphlets or spare time to go hang out in a cafe and debate the nature of justice or the merits of Voltaire's latest essay. Even among those who had the resources to take part in the Enlightenment, there were plenty who simply preferred other pursuits or just found it too boring. But it is important to think and talk about the Enlightenment, because it had a disproportionate impact on powerful and influential people. We just also need to bear in mind that most people's outlooks hadn't actually changed very much from centuries before. The philosophes were questioning the authority of organized religion and the very existence of God. But on the eve of the French Revolution, the local church remained the center of life for the vast majority of Europeans. Enlightenment thinkers questioned the right of traditional political elites to rule, 
but as long as average people had food to eat and a reasonable degree of personal safety, most were perfectly happy to defer to established authority. The old feudal system was the way European societies had run for over a thousand years. Imagining anything different took courage, creativity, and intelligence. It is difficult to let go of the only life you have known and embrace an uncertain future full of frightening possibilities, even if you know the status quo is imperfect. In 18th century Europe, very few people had the will or the means to question things until they were forced to by circumstance during the French Revolution or in its aftermath. With all that in mind, I'd like to take a brief survey of 18th century Europe. You don't necessarily need a map for this, but it might be useful, particularly if you're a little fuzzy on European geography. I posted one to Twitter and Facebook if you want to follow along, but again, you should be fine without it. I'm just going to work west to east, starting with Portugal, so here we go. Portugal is a small country. If you've learned anything about Portuguese history, it probably has to do with the major role they played in the Age of Discovery. But by the 18th century, that was pretty far in the past, and Portugal was both metaphorically and literally on the periphery of European history. They went through a period of modernizing absolutist reforms, led by a forward-thinking royal minister, the Marquis of Pombal. This guy is so important to Portuguese history, the whole era is sometimes called the Pombaline era after him. He's a fascinating figure if you want to go look him up or something, but he's also not very relevant to our story, so I'll restrain myself from going any further. Once Pombal was gone, the Portuguese nobility were able to reassert some of their political power, but the core of his reforms did survive. Portugal had a huge colonial empire for its size, and managing its interests abroad took up a lot of the government's time and effort. By the late 1700s, the colonies, in particular Brazil, were becoming so wealthy and developed that they almost eclipsed European Portugal in economic importance. This trend worried Portuguese political leaders, who thought it could create political problems, or even lead to Brazil declaring independence. They tried different measures to reverse it. For a brief period, they actually made it illegal to emigrate to Brazil, but the colonies kept growing. The Portuguese tended to stay out of European affairs. Portugal's geographically isolated, and they had outposts as far away as modern China and Indonesia to worry about. But they did have a long-standing relationship with Britain. Having a strong alliance with the world's dominant maritime power is a good strategy for a country with far-flung colonies focused on international commerce. They had a respectable army and navy, but as you might expect, both were pretty small. Moving on, with the exception of the small British enclave of Gibraltar, the rest of the Iberian Peninsula was part of Spain. By the late 18th century, Spain was just beginning to pull itself together after a long period of sustained decline. At the beginning of the 17th century, Spain was, without question, the most powerful country in Europe. By the eve of the French Revolution, they weren't even considered one of Europeans' great powers. The decline is obvious, but exactly what the hell happened, and more importantly how and why, is one of those big questions that's been the subject of constant debate among historians. This is still an open question, so I don't want to delve into it too deeply, but to sum up my own opinions on Spanish decline as briefly as I can, Basically, Spain was a victim of its own success. During the Spanish Golden Age, much of Spain's wealth came from control of lucrative gold and silver mines in the Americas. According to some estimates, the majority of all precious metal production in the entire world came from just two mines in Mexico and Peru. That's probably already setting off some alarm bells for those of you who took economics in college, 
but the negative consequences of a sudden, massive increase in the money supply were not well understood in this period. Within a few decades, inflation was out of control and the economy was devastated. There was also an endless succession of expensive wars. Spain was so powerful that it had interests in every corner of the world, and maintaining and protecting those interests was so expensive that even the immense wealth coming in from the colonies often wasn't enough to cover it. The government of the richest country in the world was drowning in debt. With wars, economic upheaval, and the management of a global colonial empire to distract them, maybe it's not surprising that the Spanish began to lag behind their rivals in reforming and modernizing their government along absolutist lines. While the other great powers were getting better at raising taxes, building bigger armies, the Spanish had to rely on debt and an expensive mercenary army. When they did try to centralize authority and increase revenues, several parts of the empire revolted, compounding the government's problems. By the 1650s, Spanish power was collapsing. In 1700, the last of the ruling Spanish Habsburg dynasty died. And to everyone's surprise, his will named a member of the French Bourbon dynasty as his successor, his family's greatest enemies. Spain's new king abandoned their traditional alliance with Austria and aligned the country with its traditional enemies, the French. The new Bourbon dynasty, as it was called in Spanish, renewed the push for centralizing absolutist reforms. They brought in French experts and consciously tried to emulate the French absolutist system. Some people in Spain embraced this change. Others, particularly among the nobility, resented it and began to see centralization and modernization as part of an intrusive and humiliating foreign influence over Spain. Over time, the divide between these two groups widened and deepened. It'll be an important part of our story, and it persisted into the 20th century. Spain's army and navy were pretty large by the standards of the time. There were a few competent officers and effective units, but in general, the Spanish military had declined along with the rest of the country. Across the Pyrenees Mountains from Spain is, of course, France, which, like I said, we're skipping for today, so I'll move on to Italy. As those of you following along on the map can already see, 18th century Italy was a bit of a mess in geopolitical terms, divided into nearly a dozen states, some smaller than the average American county. During the 18th century, Italy included some of the poorest places in Western Europe. Just as today, generally the economy was worse the further south you went, but there were pockets of wealth and pockets of poverty everywhere. This might be a bit surprising given what a dynamic place Italy had been during the Renaissance. It's been argued that central Italy was actually the birthplace of modern capitalism, but far too many of these Renaissance proto-capitalists had used their wealth to entrench themselves in the existing social order rather than investing it in new ventures. So that era of economic dynamism ended pretty quickly. The Kingdom of Sardinia controlled most of northwestern Italy, uh, as well as the smaller heartland on the island of Sardinia. This was arguably the most important and powerful Italian state, but that really isn't saying much. The old Renaissance merchant states of Genoa and Venice were still alive and kicking in 1789. Their glory days were long over, but they were still important regional trading hubs, and Genoa in particular was one of the main centers of banking in southern Europe. Both were technically republics, just as they had been for centuries, but it's important to keep in mind that these were not republics in the same sense as the revolutionary French Republic. They actually had a lot more in common with the pre-revolutionary monarchy. 
Genoa and Venice were oligarchies ruled by a handful of wealthy families. Nobody was claiming to rule for or by the people. Genoa was basically a city-state, but the Venetians still controlled a decent-sized chunk of land in northern Italy and along the Adriatic coast, territory that was eyed jealously by their neighbors to the north and east, the Austrians. The Austrian Habsburgs controlled the richest and most important city in northern Italy, Milan. They had a great deal of formal and informal influence over the whole region. Protecting and expanding the sphere of influence in Italy was a major goal of Habsburg foreign policy, and something we'll definitely be talking a lot more about going forward. The papacy had a huge influence over Italian affairs. Some of this power came from the Pope's role as spiritual leader of Catholicism, and also his role as the organizational head of the church as an institution. But 18th century popes also had practical, real-world political authority over much of central Italy. The pope was the legal sovereign of a large area called the Papal States. He had a military and a government administration just like any secular duke or king. It will probably not shock you to hear that the Pope's rule was extremely conservative in every sense. Reform and enlightenment were dirty words in the Papal States, which made them some of the most poorly administered places in Europe. Southern Italy was mostly controlled by the Kingdom of Naples. The kings of Naples came from a branch of the House of Bourbon, the same family that ruled France. Central authority was very weak in the Kingdom of Naples, and its rulers were almost as resistant to change and reform as the popes. The result was poor administration by powerful and insular local elites. The kings of Naples didn't always follow their French cousins' lead in politics or foreign policy, but that certainly did not stop them from taking it personally when cousin Louis lost his head to the guillotine. So those are just a few of the most notable Italian states, but do keep in mind that's just a handful out of nearly a dozen. There were individually wealthy places in Italy, particularly in the north, and places where the local government did its best to rule well and change with the times. But in general, Italy was poor, and its systems of administration were antiquated. In the countryside, the powerful landholding elite enriched themselves by squeezing the peasantry dry while teeming slums of urban poor were a common feature of city life. It's estimated the city of Naples alone had over 100,000 chronically unemployed people during this period. Italy was a conservative place, but in some prosperous cities there were small circles of intellectuals and liberal-minded bourgeoisie who were receptive to Enlightenment ideas. Some of these men were beginning to think about a larger national identity that would encompass all Italians. But these concepts were still in their infancy in 1789. It is too early to be talking about Italian unification or the Risorgimento. That movement wouldn't gain momentum until given a push by Napoleon. Militarily, none of the Italian states had much to brag about. It's hard for a small state with a weak central government to build or maintain a very big army or navy. That's one big reason so many Italian rulers were willing to accept the influence of outside powers like the Habsburgs. They had a big enough army to keep the peace. Leaving Italy, I think I'm going to skip over the Habsburg lands for today and talk a little bit about the Dutch Republic. The Netherlands became independent in the mid-17th century. They were one of those Spanish-ruled territories that rebelled when Spain tried to assert central control and raise taxes. The independent Netherlands almost immediately became major players on the European commercial stage. The Dutch had been renowned as merchants and bankers since the Middle Ages, and during their golden age in the late 17th and early 18th centuries, 
The Netherlands became Europe's most important financial center, and Dutch colonies and trading posts were established all over the world. But the Golden Age couldn't last. The English didn't appreciate the competition, and the French did not like the idea of a new great power rising upright on their doorstep. By 1789, the Dutch were relegated to secondary power status. Their navy, banks, and merchant companies were eclipsed by Britons, and any continental ambitions were dashed by military defeats. So the Netherlands would never become a great power. But it was still an affluent state and an important secondary power. The Dutch navy was large, modern, and competent. The Dutch economy played second fiddle to the British, but it was still one of the most advanced economies in Europe. Dutch society was strong, there was a large bourgeoisie, the population was comparatively well-educated, and what we today would call civil society was better developed than almost anywhere in the world. A major reason for this strong society is that unlike Genoa or Venice, we can't really call the Dutch Republic an oligarchy. Its government really did have some similarities to a modern democratic republic. 18th century Dutch society was perhaps the most liberal in Europe, maybe even the world. There was a sense of individual rights, especially freedom of speech. Many of the great Enlightenment texts that were banned by more oppressive regimes were printed freely in Amsterdam and then smuggled out to the rest of Europe. Dutch markets were relatively free as well. Many of the goods that were sold as state monopolies in other countries were traded on the open market in the Netherlands, which made it a center of smuggling and gray market international trade. Dutch politics were more participatory than anywhere else in the world. Political issues were openly discussed in the press and in lively taverns and coffee houses. But we should keep in mind that the Netherlands was a liberal democratic place only by comparison to the rest of 18th century Europe. Dutch society was hierarchical, repressive, and elitist by modern standards. Dutch politics were inclusive for the time, but the majority of the population could not participate. A tiny minority of landowners wielded a huge amount of power. But not everyone was happy with the status quo. The relatively open, affluent nature of Dutch society meant that the Enlightenment had a big impact there, and the more liberal political system meant that people who adopted these new ideas could really try to put them into practice. By the late 18th century, there was a large, active faction within Dutch politics advocating for radical reforms. They called themselves the Patriots. Dutch politics had a history of being rough and raucous. And I'm not talking yelling and overheated rhetoric here. I mean the type of rough and raucous where a crowd physically rips apart the prime minister and then eats him raw, as happened to the unfortunate Johann de Witt in 1672. Think about that the next time you hear someone complain about partisanship. For most of Dutch history, the political tension was between a faction that wanted the Dutch parliament to have more power and a faction called the Orangists that wanted the country to operate more like a monarchy. By the late 18th century, the Orangists had succeeded in shifting the Dutch government in a more conservative, monarchist direction. Meanwhile, the pro-parliament faction had been pretty much replaced by this new Enlightenment-inspired patriot faction, who were seeking a much more radical shift in political power. Dutch politics was more polarized than ever. There wasn't any cannibalism this time around, but the country was on the brink of revolution for much of the 1780s. The Orangist government even had to ask for military assistance from Prussia to contain pro-patriot mob violence that looked very similar to scenes that would play out in Paris a few years later. With Prussian help, the patriots were suppressed but not destroyed. They cheered on the revolution in France a few years later, 
And this unresolved political rift within Dutch society would have huge consequences when the country's Orangist leadership joined the war on the revolutionary French government and French armies invaded the Netherlands. I think this is a good place to stop for now. I know I said we'd get to Frederick the Great this episode, but there's just too much ground to cover. Next time, we'll be talking about Central and Eastern Europe, the rise of Prussia, and the wars that set the stage for the Napoleonic era. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off. U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.